Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrads.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, how many people are above a seven? Above a seven. We call you the people in denial. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Anybody uh, three or below? Three or below? We have donuts for you. <laughs> you know, there are times in life when we, uh, we just look at the world we live in, and, uh, and, and frankly, we, we oftentimes just forget about all the good stuff. I want to point out some things about the world we live in. Uh, the world we live in has um, electricity, has mobile phones, which generally is good. Um, I appreciate the fact that in the modern world we live in, we have medicine. Uh, I would have been, if, I'd have born, if I was born 100 years ago, I'd be dead by now. I'd have been dead a long time ago because I need the medicine that keeps me alive. And, and, uh, and so there are things about the world I live in that I really appreciate. There are some great things about the world I live in. Unfortunately, we have a, a news media and society, and, and there is some suggestion by psychologists that it's some kind of preservation technique that what we're most aware of most of the time are the negative things, the things that might threaten us. And that is what we tend to focus in on. And, uh, and so uh, being human, I think that we... Uh, we do. We see the negatives in the world, and they just kind of bum us out. And there are negatives. Uh, while we've made great progress in some areas, there are other areas that it seems like we're kind of sliding towards some pretty bad places. It just feels that way to me. And, and that can get the best of me. And so we've set out to do a little series here uh, this week, uh, and then next week, we'll, we'll finish it next week, and, and kind of how we respond. So we respond instinctively. So if there was a danger somewhere in front of us, we would respond instinctively, right? You, you, you either flee or you fight, right? You either, you either retreat. So we can look at the world we live in and see the negatives, and we can retreat. And there are times to retreat, by the way. Uh, retreating is appropriate sometimes. Not always, though. Um, sometimes we want to resist. We want to resist the direction of the world in which we live, and that also can be appropriate at times if done with the right attitude and right motives. Uh, today I want to talk about uh, another one, and this is about um, uh, being relevant to the world in which we live in order to speak into it. Uh, being relevant to a world in which we live, rather than run away, rather than stand up and just fight sometimes it may be appropriate for us to be relevant enough to have a voice. And, and we need to allow God to lead us to that and let, let that be one of the options. 32 years ago, uh, in a couple of months, I, I told you about this last month, I guess it was beginning of last month. Um, 32 years ago, Connie and I arrived in, in, uh, in a little seaside village called Seal Beach. And we knew nothing about the town, nothing. Nothing. As a matter of fact, I'd only been here on one weekend for a couple of days, and there were lots of people in town. I got up on Monday morning and went into Seal Beach. It was empty. And, I, and the only people running around were people I later found out were from Leisure World. <laughs> and I thought I'd land in the wrong place. I was 30 years old. Nobody looked like me in Seal Beach on Monday morning. And I was wearing a suit and tie also, which I had done at the office for many years, and nobody was doing that either. I had a lot to learn, okay? But here's what happened is uh, Connie and I ended up in this place that we felt a couple of things about. 
We didn't know anything about the community. Uh, we didn't grow up in, the, in, in, a, in, a, in a coastal community. We grew up in the Midwest. And, and, uh, and so we knew nothing about what was going on. But we believed a couple things. One, we believed that God had called us here. We actually, I, didn't hear a, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I had a sense uh, over the period of weeks that we prayed about it, uh, such a strong sense that this is what God wanted us to do. Now, in, in, in kind of, in, if you add up the equations, it didn't make any sense. We, when we made the decision to move, we had no place to live. We had no income. Uh, we didn't even have a congregation to pastor. We just had a little rundown church that needed repair. But I knew somehow, I knew through my prayer time, spending time, that this is what we're supposed to do. So I had this sense of, I will, I will use the word calling, a sense of calling. This is what we're supposed to do. And I also had another belief, and that was that God wanted everyone to know him, to be reconciled to him, their heavenly father, their creator, through Jesus Christ. God wants everyone to be reconciled to him. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that's what scripture teaches. And so we showed up in this little place, and, and, I, and if you've heard me tell the story, I won't tell the whole thing again, but in the first day, I went to the office in my suit and tie, the only 30-year-old in Seal Beach, and, uh, and, and on a Monday morning. And um, I, I began to pray, God, I don't know why I'm here, but you called me here. I, I'm supposed to build a church. I believe that. Please help me know what to do. And I prayed, and I was done, and so I figured out, well, what do you do? Well, I need a haircut. Let's go get a haircut. And, and if you could do anything in Seal Beach, it's get a haircut. If you've ever been down there, there's like 16 hair salons on Main Street. And, uh, and so I went and got a haircut. And here's the weird thing. I had just prayed, God, please help me know what to do and what to say. And, and the young lady who was available to cut my hair, I sat in the chair and, and she began telling me her story and she begins crying. And I start telling her about Jesus. She starts crying and praying. And in the meantime, I'm hoping I don't get stabbed with those scissors because she's crying really hard and still cutting my hair. And, and she was one of the first people who started coming to our little church down there. And so I got done with my haircut, and she had cried to accept Christ. I cried and prayed and accepted Christ, and I thought, okay, and this is what we're going to do, I guess. And then I went to open my bank account, same exact thing. Uh, this time I wasn't in physical danger. Um, there were no scissors involved, but crying, praying to accept Jesus right there in, in the bank uh, lobby. And that uh, her and her uh, significant other began to attend the church. And I began to develop, uh, by the way, both of those couples and a couple more of the first couples that came to our church all had domestic violence issues, which was new to me. I wasn't familiar with that. Um, I began to develop this belief that not only did God want to save everybody, that if people just understood who Jesus was, they would want to be saved that they would want to come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I've come since to maybe fudge on that statement a little bit. I think there are some people who just like doing life the way they're doing it, and they don't care what the options are. But generally, I began to believe that if I could just speak in such a way, get to the heart of the issue in their life, how, what part's not working, and explain how God could change that, I had a pretty good chance of helping them come to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so we began to, those couples started coming and a few more came and, and some families came and a bunch of alcoholics started showing up because at the beach you uh, have run as far as you can and you either got to um, go to Hawaii or stop drinking. I believe that, by the way, uh, or, or drink yourself to death. And so we had a whole bunch of people in recovery start showing up and I began to learn that language. And, and so I began to find another way to talk to people about Jesus at the point of need. And um, so here I am in uh, the end of the 80s and I find myself in a community with um, a bunch of recovering alcoholics 
um, a whole bunch of people who were turned off to church uh, and religion, uh, a bunch of people carrying around or wearing crystals because they thought that was going to heal them somehow uh, because they'd gone into some new age philosophy. Um, and I found myself in an environment very different from what I was used to. But I began to find a language, a way to get to a point of need and a place of commonality where we could begin to find some healing and some hope in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how it began. By the way, this is a classic evangelist kind of move. You're saying evangelist like TV? No. The evangelist is just someone who likes to share the good news of what Christ has done. And I found that I needed to change my starting point. Never change the message. The answer is always Jesus. But you change your starting point and you begin to speak a language. And I realized that the these and thou's of the King James uh, English that I had grown up hearing at church wasn't going to work. Nobody really used those much anymore except English majors and nobody likes them. <laughs> just kidding. Um, just seeing if you're listening. And so I began to, we got rid of, we didn't have a choir, we didn't have the church organ, we had a band, and we started trying to speak a language we thought people could understand. If people were going to reject Jesus, I wanted them to re reject Jesus, not my culture, not my religious culture. Does that make sense? There's this issue, uh, there's this idea here of, of contextualizing the gospel. In other words, we don't ever change the message, but we may use a different starting point to communicate it. There's a great example of this, and it's, it's found in Acts chapter 17. And I just want to walk through this passage. It's a story of Paul. And by the way, he's had a couple of times in advance of this in a couple of cities where he's had to, he's had to retreat. And he finds himself now in Athens, and he's not even there to do ministry yet. He's just kind of waiting uh, on Silas and Timothy to show up so he can start doing ministry. And while he's there, some interesting things happen. And so, and you're saying, well, how does this relate to our society? Well, he observes something, and it changes his plan. And I, I want to, let me just start reading that for you. It's in, in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Here's the very first thing. Right off the bat, in the first, in the first sentence, we see something. Paul actually cared about a city. It wasn't his city. It wasn't necessarily even his people, but he saw the futility of what they were worshiping, that they were worshiping idols. It troubled him. It didn't make him mad. didn't make him adversarial. It made him concerned for the citizens of that city. Now, here's something that I've had to return to again and again. I don't know if this was true of Paul or not, but it could very well have been. When I begin to see the things in society that I don't like, and I even would consider evil, when I begin to see that, I kind of begin to get a me in versus them. It's a me versus them. And what Paul didn't do is get angry at the people. He was upset about the philosophies that were, that were kind of an exercise in futility. They weren't going to get these people anywhere. Because the, the idols they were worshiping weren't even real gods. And so he it really comes from a place of compassion. So one of the things that I've had to do uh, numerous times, even uh, not that uh, distant past, is to stop and realize where God has brought me from. So I was raised in church. My dad's a pastor. I get all that. But there was a time when I turned my back and thought I knew better. There was a time when I decided to walk away from the whole faith religion thing and pursue things that felt better in the moment. 
And I, every day now, I thank God that he grabbed me and pulled me back. And yes, I made a decision, but he was putting the pressure on, believe me. And he began to show me really early on how empty the pursuit of that pleasures and even the money that I anticipated to pursue was going to be empty for me. And so when I stopped worrying about them as my enemies and began to think about how good God has been to me when I was his enemy, I began to have compassion for the people even though I can reject their philosophy or lifestyle. Does that make sense? And so what we see is right off the bat that Paul had such a heart that he was able to be compassionate for people who were going to disagree with him, vehemently disagree with him, by the way, and yet still care about them. Here is one of the problems, is that if we revert to retreat all the time, and that's our autopilot, and there are times to retreat, believe me, there are, or if we always go to um, resist we may find ourselves resisting the people, not the problems, when the people still need help. Here's what I didn't say about moving to California is my senior pastor uh, outside Chicago in the suburb um, said to me, I, Cody was uh, four, I think, and Chelsea was two, one or two, um, somewhere in there. Uh, he said, you don't want to take your family to California and raise them out there. That place is a mess. Part of it was his perception of California. Part of it was he was right. <laughs> Which I heard as all the more reason why they needed me in California. Because that's what I've been called to, right? No, no, no. no. Who, well, they needed Phil Jackson is who they needed. <laughs> and, and they got him too. If you're not a basketball fan, you don't get it. But very old joke. What he, what he said was important because what he thought he was telling me was you're making a bad decision. What he was doing was affirming why God was calling me to California because that was a place where I, with my unique gifts, abilities, and stubbornness could actually make an impact where my irreverence wasn't considered all that irreverent, <laughs> where I could look like a pretty wholesome guy compared to everybody. <laughs> no, just, that, that, that was a little too honest. Sorry. So we find ourselves in the year 2021. I don't see a lot of people carrying crystals anymore. And, and some of the other philosophies like BMWs will save you uh, don't exist anymore. Materialism was rampant in the late 80s. It's more subdued now, at least not as obvious. What is an evangelist? By the way, the Bible says that all of us are evangelists. All Christians are evangelists. What do we do? Are there times when God would call us not to retreat, and not to stand up and resist, but to relate in order to speak into a society, into something that's not going right. What, what do we do? So here's Paul. Let's, let's go on with the story of Paul. Um, and he says this. Um, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began, by the way, to, to study these two groups, it's an interesting study because later in his, in his sermon part of it, he actually kind of takes their belief system apart 
He kind of dismantles it and he challenges everything they believe um, that because at the end of the day, their belief system is empty. And so he knows what they believe and he begins to, he begins in terms of the character of God, in terms of the nature of man, he just begins to, um, to kind of take it apart, but not in a super adversarial way, but in a kind of an informative way. Um, he said, so let's see, the Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him or, and the dispute is not so much argue as, as challenge uh, in a conversation. Uh, some of them ask, uh, what is this babbler trying to say? Uh, others remark, and babbler it just means someone who's kind of, what was a phrase I almost used there? Um, I, I can't think of another phrase and I can't use the one I thought of. <laughs> Saying stuff they don't know about, they don't really know about. How about that? You don't, it's all right. Uh, <laughs> He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching uh, the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, Areopagus, Snuffleupagus. <laughs> Nobody even knows what Snuffleupagus is anymore. That's so funny. All right, anyway, all right. Uh, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. We are bringing some, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want um, uh, to know what they mean. And, uh, and all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so they were interested in his, as an idea. They like to talk about ideas, like to talk about philosophy. They were interested in his ideas. And so, uh, and so he he comes to this and he, and he, and he begins this, this speech. So where they took him to is from like the, the town square or the marketplace, the Agora, which is, is, is if you go on a trip with us to Greece, if we ever do another one, um, that you'll find that they're still there. You can still see them. The, the ruins are still there. And they take him from that to the kind of a courthouse kind of place where the, the elders of the city, a place where they pronounce judgment on uh, criminal cases, but also um, um, talk about other affairs that need decisions made. So they're going to make a decision about him. That's where they take him to. And that's where he makes this speech. All right. And so now here, here's then he shoved the meeting of the Aragopagus, and, um, and he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, here's what he does, and this is called contextualizing uh, the thing. He says, here's what we have in common. I see you're religious. I'm religious. Let's talk. Now, here's an interesting thing. In a world in which so many of us feel alienated from the culture that exists, the prevailing culture, that we think we have nothing in common, it's absolutely not true. We have many things in common. These families up here have so much in common with any family in America. They want their children to be safe. They want them to be well-educated. They want them to be loved. They want them to grow up to have a happy life. They have so many things in common. Paul finds something he has in common with these people. There are people that he disagrees with about the most important things, and yet he finds something in common in order to have something to say to them. Let, let, me, let me kind of uh, talk about this. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 22, talks about Paul trying to find a way to communicate the most important thing in life to people by finding commonality. He says it this way, starting in verse 20. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. There's a lot of theology in there that we don't have time to explore. But so as to win those not having the law. 
To the weak I become weak to, uh, to win the weak. I have become, and here's the critical part, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. What he's saying is the message is always the same, but I'll start from wherever I can start. I'll start from whatever place I can make a connection with somebody. You drive a Ford, I drive a Ford. Let's talk about Jesus. Well, you're saying, well, that's silly, but it's just called building a relationship. At some point in a relationship, I'm going to share the most important thing about me. The most important thing about me is not that I own two Fords. It's that I own a Toyota. No, it's not. (laughs) And so he he begins this by finding commonality. One of the things that we can do if we want to, if you feel like God is, and by the way, let me just, let me just uh, back it up here a minute. I have so much good stuff on this. I I wish, I may I'll do a whole series on this sometime. Uh, Here's the thing I'm going to say to you. We think about our society in, in grand terms, and there are huge narratives and issues going on, but you and I don't get to fix those most of the time. What you and I get to do is talk to our brother, our sister, our parents, our neighbor, our friend. And so while we're aware of the global issues going on, we probably aren't going to get to fix those. But we can fix or at least address what is right in front of us. See, Paul was a part of Christianity. These philosophers at the end, most of them, uh, listening to him, rejected him. But within 250 years, everyone in that area believed in Jesus. He didn't get to fix the global situation. He only got to do the opportunity in front of him. And that's all we're called to do. God is in charge of the outcomes. And so what does he do? He finds commonality, and then he points out uh, uh, points of need. So let's go on. And uh, you okay? You good? All right. I'm having fun. Uh, so let's see where we are. Okay. Um, so he says this, men of Athens, I see that everywhere you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. There's two very important things here. One is he found commonality. You're religious. I'm religious. Let's talk religion. And then he goes on to their territory. By the way, if he was talking to a Jewish crowd, he'd start with the Old Testament. These people don't care about the Old Testament. These are Greeks. They don't believe in the Old Testament. They don't don't care about prophecy. They don't care about the Messiah. They care about getting religion right, or at least philosophy right, more accurately. And so he reaches into their world as a starting place, and he says, by the way, you're very religious, and I notice, and here's an assumption that we can all make, that every belief system outside of Christianity is incomplete. Every belief system outside of Christianity, if you look at the actual narrative of every other belief system, Christianity is the only one with a happy ending. Another way, um, we're just going to kind of melt off into nirvana. I'm not sure that's a happy ending for me. Or I'm going to have to do this over again to get it right, right? Or, well, I'll just die and that's the end of it and hope people think fondly of me. That's a, that kind of leaves me flat, you know what I'm saying? Christianity says, no, you're going to heaven, a great place to live with the God who created you, with those others who, who love you and love God forever. And he's going to give you great assignments there. It's going to be incredible. Well, I kind of like that one, right? And so he reaches into their context and he says, um, yeah, this thing you guys are kind of covering your bases on over here, the one you haven't found yet, the one you haven't figured out, I'm going to tell you about that one, right? There is, I believe, and every person if I, I used to, when I used to do a lot of personal uh, conversations, I tr- still try to do as many as I can with people who don't share my faith. I'm not out to beat them up or prove I'm right. I'm, I'm a mess, just like they are. I know that. I, I, that's the truth. 
But the reality is, is that I at least have the hope that God is moving me towards something. That it's not futility, it's not some unknown force, it's not just fate, which is what the Epicureans and Stoics believe. It is an actual person who loves me more than anybody else, has an intention for my life, who I can trust, is moving me towards something. Something powerful, something wonderful, something good. I believe that. And I have this theory that if I will listen to somebody long enough, they will tell me how to tell them about Jesus. At some point, they're going to get honest enough with me to say, here's kind of the breakdown. Because most people have, have kind of amalgamation of, or, or synthesized their own belief system. Well, here's my worldview. And they grab a little here and they grab a little here. Grab a little, and it's usually what's most convenient and allows them to follow the most urges. And if I will listen long enough, there's, a, there's an unknown spot somewhere. One of my friends I told you about not long ago is his unknown spot is what happens when you die. And he couldn't even say when I die. He would say, well, when I'm pushing up daisies. Because it was so painful to not know it. He was a smart, smart guy. He had it all figured out, except he couldn't do this one thing, which happened to be the most important thing to figure out. What happens? What's the point of life and what happens afterwards? And at over seven years, I talked to this guy. And every time we circled that, he would run away until eventually he had to come to grips with the fact that his worldview didn't hold water and that Christianity did. And that if he was going to have hope for this life and the life to come, that he better believe in Jesus. Not because I was right. He's smarter than I was. The reality is, is Paul wanted to have, find commonality. He wanted to find a point of need. And then he wanted to step into that, in that opportunity in front of him, and bring, ho- bring help and bring healing. Sometimes you've got you to retreat. Sometimes you've got to resist. And sometimes you've got to be compassionate enough to relate, to step into the situation and say, I might have an idea for you. I might know that unknown thing you've been searching for. I might have the ability through my own experience, not my intellect, not my superiority, certainly, but through what it, the gift I've been given, maybe I could help you figure that unknown thing out. Paul steps into it. The problem, of course, with this is if we try too hard to be relevant to fit in, we go from, um, uh, from contextualization or helping people understand the gospel in their, in their own language. Um, to compromise. And, it, and, and here's what's great about the rest of this passage, and I'm not really going to, I'm just going to zoom through it real quick, is that he then gives the content. See, one of the things we talk about with the pastors around here, the teaching pastors around here, is that there are three things. We just, I, I think, I don't know where we came up with this, but we, we believe there's three things about teachers. Is they, they're, they're, and you can be naturally good at one of them, maybe one and a half years. Nobody's good at all three uh, without practicing and skill and so on. But uh, so there's, a, there's a context, which is knowing who you're talking to. There's communication, which is the ability to speak. Uh, and then there's content, having something worth saying, Right? And, and here is, here's the deal. If all you do is relate to people, well, I'm good friends with my neighbors. I love them, whatever. But if you don't ever get to the message of the gospel, you never deliver the content. All you did was get into the context. You may have said some stuff, but if you didn't get to the gospel of who Jesus is, and so what he does, he does all this, and then he lays out the real gospel about who God is versus who they think God is, about what God expects, as a matter of fact, he goes through this course and he dismantles much of their belief system and he says, and at the end of it, and here is who God is and here is what he wants from you. 
So let me, let me just read that section for you. And uh, I, don't, I don't have time to comment, but here we go. Um, uh, so he goes this, I'm going to proclaim to you, I'm going to say to you, that's the, that's the communication part, and now here comes the content. Here's what he's been wanting to say. Uh, the God who made the world and everything in it, by the way, they believe, some of them believe, that the God and the universe were the same thing. Now he's saying there is a God separate from the universe who made the universe. So there is a person uh, separate from the universe, not just some force, some unknown force out there, okay? So he's, he's kind of questioning some of their, their assumptions. Uh, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's standing in the middle of a city full of temples, <laughs> Right? And then he goes on and he says, um, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. In other words, if your God needs something from you, ain't much of God. He's challenging them. And, and because he himself, and here he says, because he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And so he's saying, God is your provider of everything. And he goes on. From one man, he made every nation. By the way, the Greeks believed that they had arisen from the earth in a specific location and that they had different origins than the rest of humanity. And he said, nope, wrong. We're all the same. And we all have the same needs and we need the same God. Um, from one man, he made every nation of men and that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them because one believed that there was this, this unknowable, unknowable force that put you where you were and there's nothing you do about it. The other believed it was just luck. It was just blind luck. It was fate. And he's saying, no, there's a God in charge, unlike what you think, which by the way, is a hopeful thing. If you think your life is just, just blind luck, or if you think there's some unmovable, unknowable, unchanging force involved, it kind of leaves you with out recourse, right? So he's challenging the fatalism of their lives. And he determines the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and per perhaps reach out for him and find him. So he's saying the gods that you are trying to find, there is a God who is available. He is available to you. And he is not far from each one of us. He is immediately available. Because they believed, generally, if they believed they were gods, one of the groups did, one didn't so much. If they believed they were gods, they were far off and didn't really care about to intervene in human beings' lives. And yet he's saying, that's not true. This is actually a very, it's challenging their beliefs, but it's a very hopeful message. For in him, and by the way, now he quotes twice. It only, it only references one, but he, twice. Most of these are quotes. We think this is scripture. It's an ancient poet, uh, Greek poet from 600 years earlier. In him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. And so he's even reaching into their culture again to say, this is what's being looked for. This is what they've been looking for for hundreds of years. It is God. It is that unknown God. And it's Jesus. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So now he's talked about who God is. Now here he's telling, what does God expect of men, of people, to repent, to turn a different direction? That is the content. That is the only reason we ever need to or should have a voice in our society to call people to repentance and redemption. Okay, it's not the only one, but it's the most important one. Maybe we're called to, to 
other things. But that's the most important one. And if we ever lose that message that it's in Christ, in the resurrection, that hope is found only in him. And as we turn our lives around, we follow him, then we will know what is right and what is best for our society, what is best for our family, what is best for our community. Only then can we know. Otherwise, we live deceived in deception, following idols, false gods. It could be the false god of materialism. It could be another false god of some other philosophy. But until we repent and know the God who is, not the God we pretend or the God we want to be, but the God who is, that is where we find hope. And until we do that, we are not going to be the kind of society, the kind of families, kind of marriages that we want. It begins with that. And that is the message that some of us may be called to deliver in our locale. It might be in your home, might be in your extended family, might be in your neighborhood. Something about Paul. Paul delivered the message with clarity, with patience, with love, and with skill. He didn't just blab. He wasn't a babbler, as they accused him of. He wasn't someone who didn't know what they were talking about. He was someone who knew God, whose life had been changed by relationship with Christ, and he just couldn't wait to share that. Those kinds of people could turn the world upside down. Oh, wait a minute, they did. And we need to again. Maybe that's the option for you in your situation or me and mine. When the world just doesn't seem right, just something's wrong. It just seems to be heading in the wrong directions in some areas. Maybe I shouldn't run away. Maybe I shouldn't stand up and fight verbally. Maybe on this occasion, and there are other occasions when Paul did the other things, but on this occasion, he just spoke truth in love. Maybe we need to earn the right to do that. You might be surprised who might be listening. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you for Paul's example, a man who kind of started out tearing the world apart, but was changed by your goodness and your redemptive power and began to try to reconcile people to you. Lord, in a world in which we are very divided, in our communities, very divided in our nation, maybe we're the ones who are supposed to help people be reconciled first to you and then eventually to each other. Lord, we are so thankful that you came. You died on a cross. You were resurrected so that we could be reconciled. Help us be ministers of reconciliation to the world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. If you need prayer today, we'll have some folks down front. Some of our elders would love to pray with you. And otherwise, go get a donut. We cast all the calories out. God bless. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time. 